0: Man, You can be seated this morning. Man, that was good to just sing and worship. And uh, gosh, I those first two songs there, I almost thought we were at a party. Man, that was good. We were singing. And we are at a party. Thanks, Keith. That's right. Good job, band and musicians. And that, that was awesome. That was a great time of worship to our Lord and King. I want to say, first of all, thank you, Grace Church, for letting uh, me and my family get away on vacation, we timed it just perfect because we missed the snow apocalypse, right? Um, and so, man, that was perfect timing. We left; the the ground was dry. We returned; the ground was dry. So, uh, um, great planning on my part. And it was awesome, uh, man. We had a wonderful time, a great time to get away, and I would highly recommend it. Um, it's good for, for you to just get away sometimes and to be refreshed, to be encouraged. Even Jesus led by example in that way. He went to the wilderness and just spent time alone with him and the Father. And uh, so, man, sometimes it's good to just get away, to unplug and to be refreshed. So thank you for allowing us to do that. I want to say thanks to Pastor Chris for preaching while I was gone. And, uh, man, just did a great job. And, uh, man, just uh, uh, wanted to say thanks to him for that. So this morning, uh, we we begin our study through the book of Esther, and I don't know about you, but I am excited about getting into God's Word, excited about studying this book of Esther. I love that I've heard uh, from you, there's a lot of excitement about going through this book, and I'm just thankful that we are a church that gets excited about studying God's Word. I love that. If there's anything to get excited about, that should be it, man. We should get excited about diving into the Word of God and learning more about who God is. Esther is one of only two books in the Bible. So without further ado, I'm going to just dive in because we've got a lot to cover today, okay? Um, Esther is one of only two books in the Bible that is named after a woman. So ladies, God God gives you dignity, value, and great worth in the pages of Scripture but especially in the book of Esther. As we begin our study through the book of Esther, I want to I give you some background. I want to give you some history. Esther is one of the last books written in the Old Testament. It was written about 2,500 years ago, so we're looking at a very ancient book on every account. We don't know who the author of Esther is. There's no internal evidence in the book as to who wrote the book. But we do know, however, that God, the Holy Spirit, wrote the book, and some would say it was Mordecai, Esther's cousin, who penned it. But no one really knows for sure. Jews actually love the book of Esther because it gets into the Feast of Purim, which uh, we're going to get into here in just a couple of weeks. Christians, however, have not really known what to do with this book. For the first seven centuries of the Christian church, Not one single commentary was written on the book of Esther. John Calvin, uh, Martin Luther, two famous Christian theologians, didn't write any commentary on the book of Esther, and we have no record that either of those men ever preached a sermon from the book of Esther. It's that controversial. And part of the reason why this book is so controversial is, is it's hard to interpret. At no point in the book of Esther does it tell us what their motivations are or what God's eternal perspective is. It doesn't give us any commentary. It just gives us history. So some of you will ask, because the Bible says, you know, to compare Scripture with Scripture, what does the rest of the Bible have to say about the book of Esther? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing at all. One commentary even said, it probably wasn't a good idea to preach through the whole book of Esther. So guess what we're going to do? (laughs) Please turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 1, verse 1. And in the coming months, we're going to to go verse by verse. We're going to go word by word through this book. And we do this because the Bible says that all Scripture is God-breathed, All Scripture is profitable, including the book of Esther. So uh, let's dive right in in, into this book this morning. We're going to start with the first character that God introduces in the book. So let's read Esther chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Now in the days of Ahasuerus. Uh, We've got to unpack this guy named Ahasuerus. His Persian name is Ahasuerus. His Greek name is Xerxes. All right, have you ever heard of Xerxes? Yeah, you've heard of him? You probably shouldn't watch it, you know, but the Frank Miller uh, film 300 is about King Xerxes. And throughout the rest of this series, I'm actually going to refer to him as Xerxes because it's much easier to say than Ahasuerus. All right, is that cool with everyone? All right. So Xerxes was the great Persian king, He towers in human history at this time. He also shadows over the life and the story of Esther. At this time, Xerxes is in his mid-30s. It was the third year of his reign. He took the throne around the age of 32, so he's approximately 35 or 36 years old. And this means that when Esther enters the scene in a few weeks, she's 15 to 20 years younger than he is. A lot has been written about Xerxes, and especially by the historian Herodotus. Okay? So a lot of what I'm telling you about Xerxes comes from Herodotus. Herodotus was a Greek historian. He's often called the father of history. And much of his work centers around the Persian Empire. A lot of his work centers around Xerxes because it had a lot of conflict with Greece. So Herodotus wrote a lot about this man, Xerxes, often called or known as Xerxes the Great. Let's continue to read to see where the story is taking place. Now, in the days of Asaharis, or we'll call him Xerxes because I can't pronounce that name, the Xerxes who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Xerxes sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital. Okay, at this time, Xerxes was the most powerful man in the world. No one ruled like Xerxes ruled. His father Darius was a legendary king. He ruled over some 36 years. He expanded his empire by taking over, conquering, and assimilating multiple nations. Their kingdom is a kingdom that spans Multiple nations, multiple peoples, different races, ethnicities, languages, and different religious convictions. Darius, the father of Xerxes, neither of them worshipped the God of the Bible. At this point, they live in Susa, which is modern-day Iran. And so, we're away from Jerusalem, we're away from the temple, we're away from the priesthood, away from the presence of God on the earth but this great story of esther shows that that god is at work in nations beyond jerusalem god is at work even in pag- pagan godless nations like the persian kingdom so darius xerxes dad he has an enormous empire that he hands to his son and in this day kings were like gods They had multiple wives. In this day and age, women were widely mistreated. They had a huge harem. Uh, the, The palace would include an entire section just to house all the women who were there to please the king, whatever his desires might be. These men, to be honest with you, these men make Hugh Hefner look Little League, Okay, in comparison to the kind of lavish lifestyle that they lived. So this man Darius, the great king, at the end of his reign, he gives his kingdom to his son Xerxes. Now, Xerxes grew up very wealthy, very affluent. Xerxes was a spoiled rich kid who grew up in the palace. He never worked a day in his life. He didn't go to war. He didn't have to fight. He didn't have to labor. He didn't have to struggle. He grew up a very spoiled boy. Xerxes lacked nothing. And then he was handed, he was given the kingdom his father ruled over. Xerxes basically ruled from Sudan all the way to Pakistan all the way over to Greece. And at this time, they referred to this area as the world because most of the people lived in this area. There there weren't a lot of people in L.A. or Boston yet, okay, at this time. At this point the majority of the people lived of the earth lived in this region and Xerxes ruled over all of it. Now imagine like imagine today one ruler, one political figure, one spiritual leader rising up to such power that they can turn Egypt, Libya, Israel, Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, Pakistan into one nation under their rule. That would that'd be amazing, right? That would be amazing. Just to get two of these nations to get along would be a miracle. Historically, these people, these nations have not liked each other. So you know a king and a kingdom are great and powerful when he can make enemies all subject to his rule. Xerxes is nothing short of a God in the minds and in the eyes of the people that he rules. No one is at the level of his authority, at the level of his power or his might. There has never been to this point in history of the world an empire this large, this vast, this affluent, this powerful. So church, it's hard to overstate who this man Xerxes was. And some of you may ask, like, gosh, how did he impose his will? How did he get all these different nations and cultures to submit to his kingdom, to his leadership? So whenever Xerxes would give a decree, it was like a word from God. It was believed that he was a God-man. Kind of sounds familiar, huh? And he would refer to himself as the king of kings. Gosh, that really sounds familiar. It was believed that he spoke with the voice of the son. And when he said something, it was like the Bible. It was inerrant. It was perfect. And it was to be immediately obeyed. They would take the decrees of King Xerxes and they would send them through the empire. It's kind of like the first postal system you could say. And this man, he he ruled over roughly 3 million square miles. It's roughly the size of the United States. So everyone who's rich, everyone who's powerful, famous, everyone who's cool is under his rule. That rhymed, that was awesome. Xerxes is a big deal. Okay? So when did all this happen? Verse 2. And in those days, when King Xerxes sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, all right, real quickly. Not only does this guy have one palace, I have to talk about his palace just for a second. Not only does he have one palace, he has two. Okay, you know you're rich when you have a backup palace in case you blow a tire on the first one, right? Like you know you're a rich dude when you have two palaces. His palace set atop the Acropolis, which means high point. So he sits high and exalted up on a hill. He's like a god. He's up near the heavens. And all the peasants and all the commoners who want to gaze or look on his palace, they have to look up. They have to look up at him as he looks down on them. His palace was very fortified. He had two, remember, two palaces, not one. He had one for the summer, one for the winter, so he could have good uh, weather year-round. The historian Herodotus, he tells us that Xerxes was a handsome man. I don't know what a handsome man is, uh, but the record says that he was tall, dark, and handsome. And I'm not really sure that's handsome. I, I tend to think that short, wide, and bald is handsome. That's, what I, that's my definition of handsome. But but whatever your definition of handsome is, that was Xerxes, okay? He's the most powerful, richest man on earth who says he's a god. He has a palace and he has a backup palace. He mistreats and abuses women. Xerxes, he took the position assigned to him by the true God and he used that position for evil. Xerxes also was very well protected. Maybe you've heard of the Immortals. The Immortals were his personal bodyguards, and it was believed that these guys couldn't die, that they were invincible. There were 10,000 warriors called the Immortals, and this was his personal security staff. 10,000 warriors, his personal security staff. His personal security staff could fill up a small stadium. They would travel with him wherever he went, and they were glad to die for him, defend him, go to war for him. He also had 2,000 horsemen and 2,000 lancers who followed him. You know, some of you can't even get that many soldiers to follow you on Clash of Clans. You're like, right? Okay, two of us play Clash of Clans. His army was a few million soldiers. The Bible talks about his royal throne. So let me, let me tell you a little bit about his throne. His throne symbolized everything he valued. It was huge. It was beautiful. It was glorious. And, and the picture of him seated high and exalted upon the throne, it was, it was a godlike picture. It shows him ruling like a god. He was carried on his throne into battles, and he would sit on it surrounded by the immortals. He would sit up high, up on a high point, and he would watch his military defeat his foes while he was seated up on his throne. If you were to sit on his throne, death was the penalty. If you even stepped on the rug in front of his throne, death was the penalty. And when you passed before his throne, you were to bow down in worship to the great king Xerxes, the king of kings. He was worshipped as a god. So what what did Xerxes do with all this money, with all this power? What did he do with all this fame? Did he care for widows? Orphans? Did he care for... Those in need? Did he look after young girls that were being abused in that day? Did he care for kids who were fatherless? (laughs) Not even close, man. Here's what Xerxes does. Look at verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. So Xerxes throws a party, and it's a party of all parties. Xerxes threw big parties, like that's his M.O. As you study Esther, we're going to see that there's between eight to ten feasts throughout the book. And these, these are scenes in the book that are very significant, where significant things happen. So here we see the first of many of these parties, many of these feasts. Now, just to kind of get you to Wrap your head around this a little bit. Think about the biggest party you've ever been to. Like maybe it was a wedding. um, Maybe it was a graduation party. Maybe it was Mardi Gras. Throwing parties is how he sways people under his rule. He gets all the military and the political leaders. He invites them to his palace and he feeds them the best food, the best wine. He offers them the most beautiful women. He gives them lavish gifts of gold and silver and He gets them to the point where they will do anything for Him because He cares for them, right? Tax dollars at work. Commentators say just His military generals, His leaders and His rulers were about 15,000 people. So imagine, imagine planning a party... For fifteen thousand people. I mean, think about the the transportation, the housing, the, the food, the drink, the place settings, the entertainment. How how much did it cost to attend this party at the palace? It was free. All of it free. It's all from the great king Xerxes. And how long do you think this party lasted? This is crazy. Look at verse 4. And while he, Xerxes, showed the riches of his royal glory, there's a worship word for you, and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Xerxes threw a party that lasted six months. Six months. They're definitely in a time of peace. If all the political and military leaders are going to drink and party for six months straight, you know the kingdom is running pretty well. Think about this with me. It's it's a six-month party for 15,000 people. I mean, how many of you have recently had a dinner party where you cooked for some people and then you went to bed for a month, right, because you were so worn out? I mean, think about Thanksgiving, Christmas. This party lasted six months. So is Xerxes, is he throwing this party to be nice? Is he doing this because he loves people? Because he's so generous? No, he's doing this to show off his riches, his power, his splendor, his glory. And he's doing this to control people, to manipulate people. Everyone, come see the great king Xerxes. He's high and exalted and powerful and he's seated on the throne. Does that sound familiar? He gathers everyone and they gather around him and we're going to eat and drink and sing and play and we're going to spend the next six months toasting the great king Xerxes while he sits on his throne And receives glory and honor and praise and worship. Grace Church, we believe glory is for another king. Amen? Amen. Another king who sits upon a throne. He rules and reigns over nations, kings, and kingdoms. This man Xerxes, he thinks he's Jesus. Let me, ask, let me ask you a tough question, Americans. How many of us really, when it comes to our wealth, is about showing our glory? Look what I have built. <laughs> Look at what I have. You know, there, there's something inside of us that wants to be king. There's something in us that wants glory. Sure, Xerxes had a lot more than we do, but we're just like him in many ways. Always trying to be king. Always trying to steal the glory from God. The story continues in verse 5. And when these days were completed, it's talking about the six-month party. Can you imagine what this looked like? All right, Maybe you shouldn't imagine what this looks like, but it's an all-expenses-paid, free harem, open bar all-you-can-eat buffet, no rules. This is crazy. It's out of control. It's Mardi Gras, New Year's Eve, frat party, happy hour, open bar, all combined into one. It's insanity. (laughs) So when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So... So picture this with me. For six months, he throws a party for all the bigwigs, okay? All of his generals, all of his leaders. And then he opens up the party for all the regular folk, right? For the poor people, for the peasants. So now the normal, common, everyday citizens, they get a one-week party. They get to party for seven days. Xerxes gives everyone a week off of work, And then he opens up his palace for everyone to tour, for everyone to come in, for people to walk through the palace and to see all of his wealth, all of his prestige. Now Xerxes is just showing off. The peasants get to see the king's palace in all of its glory. Oh, wow, like look at that. That's the throne that he sits on. Oh, wow, look at that. I wish I could afford that. I wish I could have that. Let's read what his palace was like in verse 6. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple. Okay, purple was the most expensive, most difficult, most rare color in that day. Purple dye was, was the hardest to obtain. So it was only for the most wealthy. So where you lived, no one owns purple. Nobody has purple curtains the curtains all over the palace are purple so the common peasants the commoners are walking in going i've never seen purple like this oh my word this is amazing not only that but they're hung to silver rods how many of you hang your curtains on silver rods right You should see our curtains. It's like on a bent piece of wood I found outside, you know. We don't have silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold. Come on. This is crazy. Like, my mind kind of went to this meeting room where they were planning the party. And someone says, hey, we need seating for about 15,000 people. Any ideas? And there's a hand. Yeah, in the back. How about we make gold couches? It's like, let's do that. Let's do gold couches. That's a lot of gold when your couches are made of gold. Meanwhile, down the hill, poor people are hunting and fishing and farming just trying to survive the night. But oh, there's the great King Xerxes sitting on his gold couch, his purple curtains held up with silver rods. And it says, silver on mosaic pavement of porphyry. He's got fine jewels embedded in the floor of his palace. Mother of Pearl. Many of you ladies would love to have anything Mother of Pearl, anything. And precious stones. So, His palace is just over the top. It's so majestic, it's heaven-like. And it gets worse. Let's keep reading. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. Drinks were served in in gold jugs, right? Some of them were hand-carved. Some of them had jewels in it. And you know you have a lot of gold when all the cups are made out of gold. So the the guests, they come into the palace and they're handed a gold goblet worth more than they'll make in their lifetime and they're told to drink up. The verse goes on to say, and royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Okay, they weren't drinking wine that comes in a box, right? They were drinking royal wine. So 15,000 people had an open bar for six months. Can you imagine? They do have a drinking rule, though. Raise your hand if you think it would be good to have a drinking rule, okay? All right? Two of you are sane, all right? So it would be good to have a drinking rule. Listen to the rule in verse 8. By edict of the king... No limits were placed on the drinking, for the king had instructed his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. So the rule was, there is no rules. There is no rules. You're serving the best wine that is made in the world. It's an open bar to everyone, and it's unlimited. Drink as much as you want. So if you, if you can kind of imagine with me, Farmer Joe, you know he gets off work, he goes to visit the palace, he gets handed a goblet made out of gold, and he's told to drink as much as he wants for a whole week. What do you think's going to follow? Foolishness and insanity and craziness. Nothing in Vegas even compares to what is being served or how people are behaving at this party in the first chapter of Esther. You know, many of you have had days like this. Maybe not seven in a row or 180 days in a row, but you had days where there was no limitations, no restrictions, just full throttle towards sin. Drunkenness and gluttony and perversion. Because, you know, we have to be careful, church. I think sometimes we can look at these verses and we can get all religious and we can say... Like, those people, that's nasty, you know? Those people were nasty. What sinners. Man, I feel like I have to take a shower after reading this chapter because it's so nasty. This is just, just, you know, we get all kind of puffy and religious. But then some of us, if we're honest, would have to say, been there, done that. I understand how sinful people can be. And when given the opportunity, I was right in the middle of it. I was right in the middle of it. Some of you may be wondering, like, where are all the ladies? Ladies, you don't want to be anywhere near this type of a party, okay? Because it was military personnel, 15,000 men drunk for six months. You don't want to be anywhere near that type of a party. All the commandments were broken. Nothing good is happening. All the men are drinking, they're feasting, they're partying. There are women there, but they're the employed kind. They're part of the harem. The men, the men have no rules. And what they're doing is, man, it's despicable. It's it's wicked. Some women are there with the men, but these are the women that are getting used and abused. Look at verse 9. Queen Veshti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to To King Xerxes. So, in another part of the palace, Queen Veshti is is giving the women a banquet. Now, Xerxes, he was a perverted man. He had numerous other wives besides Queen Veshti. Herodotus, the great historian, says that the last 15 years of Xerxes' life was totally consumed with the harem and all the women who met all of his sick, sinful, selfish, abusive desires. Once again, we get religious. But you know, some of you guys have the same thing on your hard drive. What he had in reality, you have digitally. Man, we got to be careful as we condemn Xerxes that we condemn ourselves. So where's the true God in all of this? Like we're nine verses in and God... Is nowhere to be found. It seems God is missing. As a matter of fact, God is never mentioned in the whole book of Esther. It's referred to as the godless book. God never appears. He never speaks. No prophet speaks on his behalf. No angels appear. There's no miracles. Nothing supernatural happens in this book. Does it kind of sound like your life? You say, you know, I've never seen a miracle. I've read about them, but I've never seen one. God, God He's just never shown up in my life in that way. Some of you may say, "I've, I've never heard from God. I've never gotten a dream or a vision or an audible word. I've never been visited by an angel. You don't feel like your prayers have been answered. You've looked and it's not been accomplished you feel like god is nowhere to be found how many of you feel like your life is like the story of esther it's dirty rich men ruling the world you know while i'm grinding it out day in and day out and, and god just doesn't seem to show up you know it stirs up all kinds of question god do you even exist or is is king xerxes really god Is this really the pinnacle of life? Is this really all there is? Six months of partying? Like this is it? This is this is what I want to live for? God, if you do exist, are are you paying any attention at all? Have you have you been on vacation? Do you not care? Do you not see all the abuse and the injustice? Do you not see all the wickedness? God, will you not act? How many of you in in your darkest, most desperate moments of despair have asked those same questions? Come on, be honest. Where's God? Where's God in the story of Esther? God is silhouetted in the book, friends. A silhouette. You see it. You, You know, you can't really make anything out. And then all of a sudden you... You look at the absence and it reveals the presence of something you missed at first glance. God doesn't work in the book of Esther through his visible hand of miracles, but through his invisible hand of providence. History, listen, church, history is not circumstance, history is not chance. It's overseen by God. God rules, God reigns over all peoples, times, and places. God is in the details of history. God is working everything out according to His will, for His glory and for our good. You know, those of you that have felt like God is nowhere to be found, I want you to know that God is at work in your life. You may never hear His voice. You may never see His face in this lifetime. The angel may not come down. The healing may not occur. The prayer may not be answered in the way you had hoped. But God is active. God is present. He's at work in the lives of His people, even those who are far from Him, those that don't know Him. The story, man, the story of Xerxes, it's just so hollow, it's it's shallow, it's just empty. This one guy thinks he's God, we all worship him, and then he dies. And then some other nation rises up, and that leader is our new God, and we worship him, and then he dies. Can can you see kind of the progression of human history? Is, Is human history... Just thousands of years of corrupt, rich, perverted men sitting on thrones being worshipped as God? Is that all there is to history, to life? Is there not more than that? Does that not frustrate you? And here's the good news. Above Xerxes, there's another king. This book, the book of Esther, is not the only book in the Bible. Esther is part of a storyline that leads to a greater king. There's another throne and seated on it is another king named Jesus. Jesus is our king unlike Xerxes. Unlike Xerxes, Jesus got off his throne. He didn't invite us to just come and sit around Him. He first came down to dwell among us. Grace Church, I need you to know that Jesus is a better king. Xerxes was the son of Darius, but Jesus is the son of God. Xerxes never tasted poverty or humility, but Jesus tasted both to identify with us. Xerxes used his power to abuse women, but Jesus used his power to honor women. Xerxes spent his entire life being served, but Jesus spent his entire life serving others. Xerxes killed his enemies with an army of millions, but Jesus died for his enemies, saving billions. Xerxes was the most powerful man on the earth, but Jesus made the heavens and the earth, and he rules over all of creation. Xerxes said, he would rule wherever the sun set. But Jesus made the sun, and He rules over all of creation. Xerxes died, and today no one worships Xerxes' as God. But Jesus conquered death, and today billions worship Jesus as the only true and living God. Xerxes threw enormous banquets, but the one Jesus is preparing for us makes His vanish in comparison. Xerxes' kingdom came to an end, but Jesus' kingdom has no end. And as Christians, we serve the one and the only King of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace Church, we are citizens of a greater kingdom. We have received a greater gift. We look forward to a greater blessing. And we gather in the name and in the presence and in the fame of jesus christ he is our great king he's a better king than any and every king and if they were willing to throw a lavish extravagant joyful party for a demonic false king how much more should we rejoice and be glad that our king knows us Our King loves us. Our King saves us. He seeks after us. And our King is preparing a banquet for us. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite the band up as I pray. And they're going to sing a powerful song called, This is Amazing Grace. And I want you to listen. And I want you to reflect on the words as they sing it. And I also want you to worship our great King, Jesus Christ. Father God, I pray for Grace Church. I pray we would know You are good and that You work in our lives. Lord, at this point, in the story of Esther, there's no hope, there's no joy. And so it is in our own life until we meet the Lord Jesus, the greatest King, the only King. Lord Jesus, we want to see you now high and exalted. We see you seated on your throne, ruling, reigning over all languages, all nations, all cultures, all peoples, all times, all places. You alone are worthy of glory. Lord, we are made, we were created to worship and I pray our worship would be consumed with you and you alone. You are glorious, Lord Jesus. And we look forward to the day when our faith becomes sight. When we rise from the death as you did. And we walk into your kingdom together as your people. We honor, celebrate, and we glorify you forever. Forever. Don't let us settle for lesser kings and kingdoms. I pray that you would keep us hungry and strong until we see you, Lord Jesus. And I pray that you would help us as a church learn that it's okay to cheer and celebrate when we talk about how great Jesus is. It's in your name we pray. Amen.